Disclaimer! The following title is currently out of print and not streaming anywhere legally in America, so you might have to watch this one by other means. Should this become available in the US again, it is your job to buy it on DVD, stream it legally, and support the US anime industry. And with that, on with the show. This is the Otaku Nate Show, episode 28. Daphne in the Brilliant Blue, Booty on the High Seas. What is up, anime fans? Otaku Nate here with another installment of the Otaku Nate Show. The anime podcast where we talk about anime that we want to talk about. Joining me this week is my boy, Race. It's great to be here once again, Nate. How are you doing? I am doing well. I am doing well. I've got a very busy December planned ahead for myself. And today we are going to be talking about Daphne in the Brilliant Blue. Released in 2004 by J.C. Staff, created by somebody called Neskes. Uh, they haven't created anything else, so I'm just going to assume that that's the name for the team that created it, kind of like Hajime Yatate at Studio Sunrise. And it ran for 24 episodes, 26 if you include the two OAVs, and was directed by Takashi Ikehata, who also directed the 2000 series Genshiken and its spin-off Kujibiki Unbalance, Podemayo, and Taisho Baseball Girls. The writer, though, oh boy, this guy's got a resume. It's Seishi Minakami. He wrote all things related to A Certain Magical Railgun, the series number 6, Shigurui Death Frenzy, Birdie the Mighty Decode, and perhaps the biggest thing on his resume... He was the writer, or helped write the screenplay for, Paprika. Paprika, of all things. To be completely honest, you just wouldn't think that the same writer who has just had a long-storied career with a lot of uh, 90s and 2000s anime, it seems. I will have to say one thing. Paprika is probably the most wild thing you can put on your resume. I'm pretty sure it was just like one of those things like, I want that movie on my resume. I want this on my resume. I don't care how stupid or cool it is. I want it on my resume. That's oh, really hilarious to me. Almost makes you forget that he also was the writer for Manyu Hikencho. And you know what, though? We all, we all sometimes fall, Nate. Remember that. We all sometimes have good days and bad days. Good years and bad years, am I right? You certainly are right. <laughs> so speaking of the best of times and the worst of times, Race, what is the premise of Daphne in the Brilliant Blue? Alright, so the Spice Girls live in Waterworld and they have to fight <laughs> crimes, typically human trafficking crimes, and that's the plot of the show. Everything else, it, you, you can just throw it away. But yes, the Spice Girls in Waterworld, Jerry just left the band, and they need a fifth Spice Girl. So they go with the high schooler, who's every woman. Not Shaka Khan's every woman, but every woman. <laughs> that is the most 90s way you could have summed that thing up. We're at the very least early 2000s. Yeah, I mean, that's what I had to say. I mean, I was just got to go right out of the gate with the first joke. But this is basically what Daphne and the Brilliant Blue is. And it took me my second watch through before we did this review, because the first time I watched it, I was in high school. And then a couple of years later, I picked up the DVDs, finished it. And then when the DVDs started to get a little bit of value, which they do watch the market, uh, that's when I sold them all, and I was like, you know what? Nate was asking me, and guys, your pal Otaku Nate really likes to think of our guests, and yes, I am fluffing this up a little bit, because we have to, because there's not much to say about this anime, except for lots of other things we're going to get into. But I was like, I am going to see if I can break Nate. I'm going to see if I can come up with the stupidest early 2000s anime right about the time I was 
you know, kind of just drifting away from it a little bit and not really getting into the new shows. The last new show that I saw in the Right Stuff catalog in, in issues of Ann America was Daphne and the Brilliant Blue coming to DVD and Chaboy had to have it. I made that mistake as well with Love Hina, but we'll get into that another time, right? We probably will. I don't know if I will ever cover Love Hina on this, but if I do, I've got a whole rant prepared about how Kanakamatsu ruined anime forever and how he is doing less damage as a member of the Japanese parliament than he is as a manga author. Look at that. We are in the 2000s right there, and I think that that is uh, honestly one of the most hilarious things, and I concur that Love Hina ruined manga and anime forever. But oddly enough, a show about scantily clad Spice Girls hanging out in Waterworld, solving crimes, typically human trafficking crimes, does less damage to anime than Love Hina did. I wonder why. What do you think? What's your What's your take on how this show is... I don't know. It's not a cult classic by any means. It's it's like ingesting 26 tiny B-movies and like those bikini guns and girls and everything like that, like those crappy movies from the late 80s, early 90s. I don't know if you've ever heard about those, but like the bikini girls with guns kind of thing. I've heard that of them. Can act. Yeah, it, that, this is what Daphne and the Brilliant Blue is on the surface. And that's what, as a lonely teenager... <laughs> as your old boy races that's what it seemed like but it goes deeper than that it really does <laughs> well you pretty much told me you know where you first heard of the show and what your impressions were so i guess i should give you mine because the way i first heard about daphne and the brilliant blue i think i saw ads for it in like new type and anime insider but i believe neo magazine released one of these like little special issues highlighting the hot girls of anime, showing all the hot waifus in various anime at the time, and this time I believe was around 2007 or 2008. This is where I heard of such wonderful shows like Grenadier, Ikitosin, and Mouse. <laughs> I'm kind of glad that I dropped out of anime for a while, because I know that like some of the anime magazines were just really starting to just claw the scraps at this point to anyone who engages in waifu wars on twitter or facebook oh trust me it was way worse back in the day when they were just showing like hey look at all these hot female girls with these huge basketball breasts we've got this is cool right <laughs> and you know at the top of those lists would be the slayers naga oh yeah Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we kind of have to honestly open up the premise of Daphne as it's fan service city. And I was going to see if I could break the Nate like Bane broke the bat. And I was like, man, Daphne and the Brilliant Blue. I sat through this twice. He's going to have to sit through this twice. It was actually streaming at one point on High Dive. And that's where I was starting to watch it again. And I had this idea in my head and I had the notes. I was like, I got to break the Nate. Gotta break the Nate. Well, to go back to what I was saying about it, Daphne, after seeing it in that magazine and seeing the girls in their ludicrous costumes, we'll get to those when we get into animation, but it always intrigued me, mostly because they have a girl with dark skin, and I hesitate to say that she's black, because there's a whole discussion over whether or not anime characters with dark skin from Japan are considered black or not, etc. And I don't want to wade into that discourse. But it immediately made me think of a very similar show, Nadia's Secret of Blue Water. Because that show has a main character who is black, and I do mean black as Nadia is from, I believe, Kenya. And Daphne has a character who I think actually is black, and I'm like, oh my god, this show ripped off Nadia with this character, but I was always thinking about it. And the buzz around it I've heard was that it was not great, but it wasn't outright awful like some other stuff. And if you were expecting to break me with this thing, then I'll have to say, better luck next time, hoser. <laughs> oh yeah, one of these days I'll find an anime that breaks you. Oh, trust me, I've sat through the likes of Iken, I've sat through MD Geist, I have sat through Angel Cop, I have sat through Darling in the Sucks. Oh, wow, that's, I mean, you know, okay, well, one of these days we'll have to review Midori then. 
Oh. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, I watched through Daphne, and honestly, when I first watched it, my first impression was I didn't expect this to be decent. And that's the operative word for the show. Decent. Absolutely. That's that's probably the best thing you can say about it is decent, because once you get past all of the discourse with it, and once you open up the fan service curtains, you're like, oh, yeah, this show isn't so terrible, but it's also not so good, and the story is just all over the place, and by the end of it, you're just like, oh, well, that was an adventure. Indeed. So... With our initial impressions and ideas out of the way, let's talk about the animation first. And, you know me by this point, early 2000s DigiPaint, you're probably expecting me to crap all over it like I've done in the past. But honestly, this doesn't look too bad. It at least has some taste in its color palette, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I will definitely agree with that. I mean, you can really tell, like, same shows uh, around that time, like a lot of Sunrise shows with the Gundam shows, Infinite Rivius, and a lot of stuff that uh, Bandai and uh, Sunrise, excuse me, were putting out. The DigiPaint is all over this place. I mean, it's a show that you can tell its time period from just from the character designs and the animation itself. I usually say in discussions that 2003 or 2004 was when anime studios were starting to get the hang of using digital animation. We're not there just yet, but I'd say like around the end of the 2000s was when digital animation starts coming into its own. I still prefer hand-drawn cell animation to digital, and I always will, but compared to some of the stuff that came before Daphne, I'd simply say that the animation is fine. Yeah, it's definitely just fine. There are some moments where there is definitely some animation errors or some detail that's being lost. But, I mean, if we're going to be talking about something, you know, where we can notice the errors, we also notice a ton of the errors when we were watching Lost Galaxy, which was all over the place with its styles and what it wanted to be. At least Daphne was consistent and... It works. I definitely like some of the vehicle designs in Daphne. All the bikes are cool. All of the, you know, the subs, the hovercrafts, all of those things just look really well. Uh, not look really well, excuse me, but look really good. And you can tell that the show's creators with those episodes, they were having fun with the vehicles. And of course, our girl, Gloria, now I want to name a boat. I want to name my cousin's boat the Young Admiral of Blood because of that uh, one episode with the hovercraft, I think it was like 14, where they have to name the hovercraft that they get. Submarine. It was a submarine. Yeah, it was a submarine. Yep, yep, yep. Sorry about that. It was like a hovercraft submarine thing. But yeah, the Young Admiral of Blood, I'm like, that is the best name ever. <laughs> I unfortunately could not find who did the vehicle designs for this. I found the prop designer... But Anime News Network doesn't list a mechanical designer. And that's really interesting, too. I mean, some of the vehicle designs, they seem generic up front, and they're definitely not anything great like other anime that we've talked about in the past, but they're passable for a futuristic show, and I think that they look good and they fit the style. It's not. It's really interesting that you can't find a, a, a mechanical designer for the show. Maybe it got lumped in with the animation team, perhaps. Probably. I will say, though, I do like the character designs for this. It's just the right amount of sexy for these girls. None of them have those big old basketball breasts that I mentioned earlier. They all look reasonably proportioned. Very 90s looking. I see a lot of Masami Obari in the designs for these girls, especially in the eyes. Yeah, I was just about to bring that up. One of the one of the things that sometimes gets me out of watching Daphne and I kind of chuckle to myself are the inconsistent eye designs. And you can tell who's a main character by the size of their eyes and who's a bad guy because of the way that eyes are drawn and everything like that. Very, very Obari. <laughs> it is very Masami Obari. <laughs> yeah, it's not Obari who did the designs, though. The guy who did the designs, at least for the main girls, 
was illustrator Satoshi Shiki. He's a longtime artist and illustrator. He's written several manga, did illustration work for the 2019 adaptation of Dororo, and I think the thing he's most famous for was that he did the illustrations in the Attack on Titan before the fall novels. Oh, okay. So that's, that's oddly enough, a little bit of a stacked work there. Yeah, I really like his artwork, and I like the designs for the girls, at least in their default outfit. It's just the right amount of sexy. Their combat outfits, though. Good lord, what are these girls wearing? <laughs> yeah, isn't it fantastic? You know, the thing is, though, I was actually thinking about it. And I wanted to make this joke, and since we're talking about character designs and everything, if this show was done probably eight years earlier, we'd have Satoshi Urushi Hara to do the character designs. And that would be totally in line with that. Don't you agree? Oh, absolutely. This really does feel like something like a burn-up or an Agent Ika, at least in that spirit, although this is JC Staff, not AIC. Right. And it works that way. And I was just thinking about that. I was like, gosh, that's a last minute thing. I got to really say if this show was done, you know, eight to 10 years earlier, we would have that character designer do that. But when I say, you know, what the hell are they wearing for their combat outfits? I don't have any problem with skimpy outfits in anime. I mean, if you want to do fan service, you know, go right on ahead. But there's just no design to these uniforms there's like no real philosophy no aesthetic nothing to reflect who these girls are it's just they look tacky is the proper word compare these outfits to i don't know the girls in something like queen's blade where yes the outfits were all designed by different illustrators but they all have a proper aesthetic they're drawn in ways that give you clues to the character's personality, etc. Again, I ask, what was Satoshi Shiki going for when he made these combat bikinis for these girls? I'll tell you what he was thinking. He was thinking, hey, I wonder if I can take those slices of pasteurized American cheese, spray paint them different colors, and then <laughs> throw them on a mannequin and see where they land. That's, that's basically those designs. Think about it. None of these outfits really work for me. Rena and Shizuka, especially, their bottoms have no visible strings. Oh, Effectively, yeah. Yeah. they're wearing maxi pads for their bottoms. I mean, you know, you could think about maxi pads, and they're maxi pads with this stuff called butt glue. And I was, uh, I don't know if anyone, if any of our listeners have ever heard of butt glue, but I actually knew some gymnasts in my time. And there would be this spray-on glue that would keep your bottoms together so you don't get wedgies or anything like that. And that's that's basically what it is. They just spray-painted the maxi pads, threw some butt glue on there, and just called it a day. Let's go fight some crime. I think they're the worst outfits to me. It's a toss-up between Maya, who has an all-white getup that clashes with her brown hair. Like, if it yeah. had a little more color to it to break it up, I would be fine with it, but it just looks tacky. That's the operative yeah. word. And the other one that I don't like is you, who's wearing a swimsuit that looks like it was met for a woman with four sets of breasts. <laughs> it's one of those things where I was, like, really thinking about it, and it's like, Maya's, Maya's probably the worst offender with her outfits, and that's just because of the fact that there's not enough blue in her outfit to offset the brown hair and, of course, her blue eyes. Uh, she and, has uh, she has brown eyes. That's right. I thought she had blue eyes, but I know that there like blue was an accent color somewhere. Like I said, I just have to say that, yeah, the outfits are ridiculous, but we need to get into the characters themselves because I have a lot to say about Maya. In due time, mein Freunde. At least their civilian outfits give you some clue as to who they are. Although mm -hmm. I will say, you must be feeling a breeze because she's basically wearing assless chaps. Or near yeah. assless chaps. And one of the things that I like about Maya is Maya looks like uh, one of those like cozy Instagram girls that runs a cozy stream. Because she's always wearing a stupid oversized sweater with just enough uh, little skin to be like, well, I'm a little fun and flirty, but that's not her personality at all. 
you know maya's this boring every woman and then you have gloria who wears wearing a lot of yellow she likes to wear a good amount of yellow she's basically wearing a skimpier version of what revy wears in black lagoon but with mm -hmm. a white top instead of a black one she basically wears her combat outfit 24 7 in the show and you know it at least makes sense and gives you a clue as to the type of character that she is but that's mm -hmm. because it feels cohesive. Yeah, and the thing is, it's like we have Rena, who's, you know, our, our leader and one of the main characters who's the leader of the team. And she's just like, well, she's a redhead, so we're going to make her wear red. And she's just often wearing red and it just she always keeps to herself. But I just think like, oh, as a silent leader, you would really think that she would wear something more flashy and they just kind of throw her in boring stuff and going back to your Queen's Blade comparison in the civilian clothes. You do say that the civilian clothes look a little bit better. I do agree with you. But yeah, with the battle outfits, absolutely. There is just no rhyme or reason, just a bunch of fabric stuck together and there's no sign of any personality or anything like that. This just popped into my mind recently because my gold standard for sexy combat outfits will always be the original Dirty Pair. They got a one-shot manga reboot in 2009, and their outfits for this one-shot look absolutely ludicrous, and they've got balloon breasts to go with them, and they still look better than what the girls in Daphne wear. <laughs> and you know, that's really hard to say, too. Anyway, we'll we've spent enough time rambling about the outfits. Now let's ramble about the soundtrack, and I don't really think we have much to say. It's kind of your typical early 2000s anime soundtrack. A lot of MIDI instruments, a lot of techno beats. The slower tracks usually sound better than the action ones. With the, uh, I, I mean, I'm a big music guy and I love composing and writing. I will have to say that the music kind of saves the show at times, but it also brings me back to the early 2000s. Like, when I think about that music, I'm like, yeah, this is kind of your typical music for anime in the early 2000s. And there's not much to say there. You're saying that there, there was, like, some sonar waves that you were hearing and stuff like that? There's one track where the composer sounds like he's diddling on a stylophone with that in the background. Yeah, yeah, there, there's a couple of tracks like that if you really take a listen. There isn't really too much creativity, but what's there is passable and listenable if you really wanted to listen to the uh, soundtrack. It does match the show's atmosphere, though, of being set in a world that is flooded by the ocean. On the tracks where they're on the high seas or exploring the depths of the ocean, it works. And it really does, like, set the mood for the show. And I think that... The music is passable, but it fits for the show. You know, you could listen to the soundtrack on your own, but it also works like the Echo the Dolphin soundtrack, the Sega CD version that was done by, give me a second here, Spencer Nilsson and what he did with Echo the Dolphin. The soundtrack is a little bit like that. I don't know if you've ever listened to that soundtrack before, Nate, but I highly suggest the Sega CD version of uh, Echo the Dolphin soundtrack. It really is good, actually. I will. <laughs> it's a shame too because the composer for this is a guy named ko otani and like the writer this guy's got quite the resume he did all the music for you're under arrest cyber formula gpx gash bell or zatch bell if you're in america shakugan no shana another and he composed all the music in gundam wing and that's where i was just about to say with this name because you have the most generic music but Gundam Wing, ha its music is much more iconic than the show. If That's my hot take on Gundam Wing when I watch it these days. I always think to myself, the music is better than the show. And when we were talking about some of the big names earlier, before we started this podcast, one thing that I think I brought up is that we all have good years and bad years, right? This might have been a lot of great creators' bad year and just needed to put something out there to make a buck. <laughs> it's a shame because 2004 was a great year for anime. Right, but it's really kind of crazy to think about it, you know? It's just how things fall under the radar, and now two white guys from America are talking about this show and making fun of it. <laughs> One last thing to note, though, about the soundtrack, it has a very nice opening. Very much like the tastiest of the leftovers from the 90s, as far as that sound goes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The opening is... 
iconic, I would say, as in, you know, if you wanted to tell somebody about the early 2000s in anime, one of the OPs you would show them would be uh, Daphne and the Brilliant Blues opening. Especially with that constant sonar ping, that little pop, 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 pop. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. But it works, though, for the, but it works because of the theme of the show. Anyway, mute your mic, race. I gotta go through the voice cast. And as with my more recent entries, I'm just gonna highlight the core cast. Our lead, Maya, is voiced by Mai Nakahara, who would go on this decade to voice two characters in two series that are very near and dear to my heart. She was Anna in Godanner, and one of my favorite female leads, Mai Tokiha in Mai Hime. You can also hear her as Nagisa in Clanad, Haruno Yukinoshita in My Team Romantic Comedy Snafu, Rena. Perhaps her most famous roles, though, are Rena in Higarashi and Juvia in Fairy Tale. Saika Ohara plays Rena. We just heard her as Wraith in Fullmetal Panic, and she is famous for playing Urza in Fairy Tale, Yuko in Holic, Ozen in Maiden Abyss and Kayoko Huang in Fire Force. Kana Ueda plays Shizuka. She is Rin Tosaka in the Fate series, Anastasia in ReZero, Yuzuki Fuwa in Assassination Classroom, Hayate Yagami in Magical Lyrical Nanoha. In video games, you can hear her as Rachel Alucard in Blaze Blue, and IF in Hyperdimension Neptunia. Gloria, the best girl, is played by Masumi Asano. And you want to talk about Ikitosin, she's the lead girl Hakfu in that show. And also Cure Mermaid in Pretty Cure, Black Rose and Yoko in the Dot Hack series, Margarita, I hope I said that right, in One Piece. And for video game roles, she is Tira in the Soul Calibur series, and Noel Seeker from the Tales of Heroes games. Another Ikitosin alumni. Yuko Kaida plays Yu, she is Ryomu in the Ikitosen series, and Risti in Queen's Blade, so, uh, we're two for two in Girls Fighting series I mentioned. She's Agnes Jobert in Tiger and Bunny. I previously heard her as Aisu Kyubu in Amagi Brilliant Park, Marita Cruz in Gundam Unicorn, Isabella in The Promised Neverland, and for video game roles you can hear her as Sai in Persona 5, and Claire in the Resident Evil games. And finally, I gotta mention their secretary slash manslave. Mitsuo Iwata plays Tsutomu Ben Hanaoka, the voice of the titular Saiki Kuniharu in The Disastrous Life of Saiki K. He is Itsuki in initial D. He was Cyborg 008, aka Pyunma, in the Cyborg 009 series from 2001. Marcosius in Shakugan no Shana, and for all you mecha fans, he is Mike Saunders from Galgaigar. Now, on to the dub. Race, you can unmute your microphone. All right. Hey, I gotta say one thing. Can I talk about the dub? I know that uh, you always like to talk about the Japanese voice cast, and you always have everything excellent, but I gotta talk about this super stacked English voice cast and how they were squandered with this show. <laughs> the voice of Maya is Carrie Savage, which, wow, we've got a big career with her. And then Rena is done by Wendy Lee. And then Shizuka is Michelle Ruff. And Gloria is Megan Hollingshead. Yu Park is done by a person that I haven't heard of before, Erica Weinstein. Have you heard of her voice before? Because I, I, I actually watched the English twice over. I didn't do the Japanese one for this. I looked her up on ANN. She only had a few voice roles, including uh, Reki in Haibane Renmei, and then she just kind of fell off the face of the earth. Yeah, and uh, Sukasa is done by Hunter Mackenzie Austin, which he's another guy that I didn't know too much about. Uh, it's a woman. It's a woman. <laughs> it's a woman, and see, that's what I didn't know. Yeah, very much like Erica Weinstein. She had a few minor roles and minor shows here and there, and then she just vanished. All right, so I want to cut out the part that I didn't know that she was a woman. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, funny. I'm leaving it in there. Ah, uh, you motherfucker. <laughs> I actually didn't know about this, uh, about Hunter Mackenzie Austin. But hey, we're going to leave that in there because I 
and so excited about our next voice. Uh, Sutomu Hanaoka. Hanaoka. Hanoka, excuse me, was voiced by Doug Stone, and I love Doug Stone. Now, Doug Stone and Wendy Lee are all, were also the voice cast for an anime that I had growing up, Zillion. They uh, they were on the same voice cast together, which I think was really crazy. <laughs> Just to give you some more big names in this dub, we've got the likes of Patrick Seitz, Liam O'Brien, Karen Strassman, and Michael McConaughey, whom we just heard in Requiem from the Darkness, J.B. Blanc, Stephanie Shea, Kirk Thornton playing a bunch of characters in this series, Mm -hmm. as well as special appearances from Travis Willingham and... Oh, look who it is. It's Vic McNagnog. Oh, Vic McTouchia. Victim McNagnog, I now call him. <laughs> but with uh, with some of the big names that we have here, and thank you for letting me voice, uh, you know, just talk about a few of the voices that I know, where it's like, hey, I know that English voice cast. There's some good names in here, to be honest. The talent is there, but the direction, man, I don't know. It kind of reminds me of another late 90s, early 2000s anime where the voice cast was there for the English dub, but they were just kind of not really given great direction, and that would be the English dub for Brain Powered. I believe that was Ocean. Yeah, and that one is really kind of wacky. (laughs) And just like kind of the English dub, and I know, you know, I know the English dub because that's the only time that I ever really watched the show. I wanted to hear what the Japanese cast sounded like, so I did watch, I think it was like episode 12 of this, you know, with the original audio, and I'll have to say it's night and day, and that's kind of sad. (laughs) It's really a shame, because I hate to say that the cast was phoning it in, but the direction really doesn't help, and it's a shame, because this was done by New Generation Pictures, who did some pretty good dubbing work. They did the dub for Helsing and Helsing Ultimate. And yeah, the the dub for Helsing is fantastic. Yeah, they did the dub for Gunsword. That's a really good dub. And they also did a dub for an overlooked comedy that I really enjoyed. Uh, they did the dub for I, My, Me, Strawberry Eggs. I've never seen that one. It's a cute little show, although I don't know if it would hold up from your perspective. Now, that's very true. Uh, The other day when I was talking about anime with a friend of mine, they're just like, you don't like any slice of life or rom-coms or anything like that. It's like, well, they're all the same. Gosh, darn it. (laughs) And the cutesy stuff, you know, I can I can take in small doses. But I think the cuteness of Dragon Maid is kind of where I draw the line. What's that one show with the quintuplets, you know, the quintessential quintuplets? Yeah, quintessential quintuplets. That's another show where I'm just like, no, thank you. (laughs) Remind me not to invite you on when I inevitably talk about my dress-up darling. And please don't. You know my opinions on that one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This dub, I don't want to say it's bad, but it's serviceable at best. It's serviceable if you want to watch the show without investing in the show. But me, personally, I stuck with the Japanese side. And there's no problem with that. You have a better perspective of a lot of the voice actors there. And when I watch a sub, I'm just like, okay, yeah, that's the only way I can watch it. I'm not a a super dub versus subs guy. I just like, okay, however I can watch it. My rule is, if I like a dub, I stick with it. If I don't like the dub, I'll stick with the subtitles. I am not a one is better than the other. Yeah, that's where I stand. I definitely stand on your side with that. And on that bombshell, let's get into the primetime discussion. And, uh, Anime News Network used to have this column called Shelf Life, where they would take a look at what anime was coming out on DVD that week. And one of the people responsible for this was the author Bamboo Dong. And I have this right here in front of me. She reviewed the first volume of Daphne in the Brilliant Blue, and this came out at a time when there were a lot of Guns for Hire or Girls with Guns type shows that were coming out. And at the time, she panned this. It was uninspired, it was painful to watch, etc., but when she talked about related products or stuff that you could watch instead of this, Under related products, she writes, 
Now that these shows are a dime a dozen, check out Mezzo, Burst Angel, Noir, and Get Backers. I don't think that this show is better than Get Backers, or at least what I've seen of Get Backers. That's a fun little uh, two boys trying to find missing things kind of show, but... If you put Mezzo, Burst Angel, Noir, and Daphne in front of me, I would sooner pick Daphne. Mezzo, I'm told, is on par with Daphne, if a little below it. Burst Angel is incredibly mediocre. I actually reviewed it back when I was still doing video reviews. And I've only seen two episodes of Noir, but Noir just sucks. <laughs> yeah, oh man, Noir is definitely a uh, train wreck waiting to happen. I feel Daphne is able to stand above those other shows, mostly because it has a good cast of characters. And it's one of those things that you would think that, oh great, a mediocre show is going to have a terrible cast of characters, but the characters carry the show, oddly enough. And I, you know, I think that the characters... They all end up a victim of human trafficking at some point, and I just won't think that would hold up well for a viewer these days if you tried to, like, explain the show to anyone. Like, hey, you should watch Daphne and the Brilliant Blue if you like a girl and gun show. You know, a girl and guns anime from the early 2000s. If you're feeling nostalgic, you know, if you were an anime fan in high school, watch Daphne and the Brilliant Blue. And then, you know, you have some people who are aware of things and think that you know everyone should do better or whatever i'm not gonna say woke but guess what i just said it woke they're gonna hate daphne and the brilliant blue because every every main character is the is a victim of kidnapping and human trafficking at some point i can say this though they at least have chemistry and there's more to them than just being a pair of tits that's true and i like how a lot of the characters play off of each other as well and should we get into the characters? Well, you want to talk about Maya, so you can have the I floor sure with do. her. This is the three things that you have to say, and I gotta say that Maya is an idiot savant character that is every woman. She is basically supposed to be our point of view into how this post-apocalyptic world works and I feel like she does a bad job at it. And then they give her the whole angle of her having amnesia about her past. And, you know, there's every time where they go to a couple of locations where it's like, oh, my memories are coming back to me, but I was in this whole trauma. But she's a bland character and she's our main character. She's supposed to give us more perspective on things. But every other character around her, in a way, builds her up. And I know that you already have your favorite character, and I will have to say that this favorite character of yours, I love her as well. So tell us about that favorite character of yours. I just want to build off what you want to say about Maya. In her mm -hmm. defense, she at least has a character arc. My issue is that while she, we at least get some backstory for her, it's not like she gets any better at her job. No, and that's the thing. It's like... This is another thing about Maya, too, is that by the end of the series, she really does become a Mary Sue, but she never gets better at, like you were saying, never gets better at anything. But she is a Mary Sue. Right place, right time, knows how to do everything, ends up carrying everyone else around her who are more competent at the same job that they do. And I did like that, what was it, episode 10 where they had to do security, where Maya was just walking around and being silly, and then they were like, hey, pay attention to your job, and they don't even think about firing her you know I, maya is the idiot savant character like she knows what she's doing but doesn't know what she's doing and it's just hard to feel sorry for her because some people when i've you know looked up how some people have talked about the show it's like oh maya is a sympathetic lead it's like no she's not i don't feel any sympathy for her at all she's always apologizing to the other characters she's never reacting to anything else that the other characters are doing she's kind of stuck in her own little world and you know she's even played the princess like in the last arc where they had that one terrorist attack where they were trying to blow up the plane that she was on you know it's like everyone else was working around her and that's i don't know that's the biggest problem that i have with maya is that i just can't feel sorry for her she's an idiot savant and they tack on your basic oh person's a mary sue 
they have, you know, amnesia, but they can do everything still. You know what I mean? It's just kind of like one of those things where it's just, it's not that they write these plots around Maya. It's just the world revolves around her and it shouldn't. Rather than Maya just living in the world that she's given. Correct. But I mean, we have to talk about those other characters and how they, in a way, elevate Maya's boringness <laughs> i guess that's the best way to put it well let's talk first about rena and shizuka before we get to my two favorites rena is basically the leader and you know that she's the leader because she wears red and the thing about rena is that she is a ron swanson type she only speaks when she wants to she kind of observes everyone else's personalities and she doesn't act unless she feels like it that's that's where i feel like rena is you don't really get too much off of her but you get some like wisdom from her she's just she doesn't really do too much you know despite being the leader and it's a shame really because yeah. i like what i saw of her she's more the every girl than my she can kick ass she can be the femme fatale she can be a negotiator she's a jack of all trades Right. But where I say that Maya's the every woman is that it's like the everyman, the character that you can put yourself into, the self-insertion character. Reyna is not that. Reyna is definitely the leader, but Maya can feel like that. And that's what I mean by the everyman, the every woman character is basically the self-insertion character. And I meant to say this when talking about Maya, things could have gone so much worse if Maya was a boy. I would say so. I mean, Maya really definitely has it easy. Her character definitely really ends up getting it easier. But I feel like if it was a male character in Maya's situation, then yeah, it would be definitely a lot worse. Because if Maya was a boy, you can bet that there would be your typical cliche harem shenanigans. Now, there is a man who is a part of this troupe. We'll talk about him last. Absolutely, because the girls are definitely the most important part. They are the bread and butter of the show. As bland as Maya can be, it again, I shudder to think what would have happened if her gender was flipped. Yeah, we probably would have had a hentai on our hands. Or at least a really bad harem series, because harems were a big thing around this time period. That's right. I mean, and now that you got me thinking, now I'm just thinking, what if this show was Girls Bravo? Oh, God. That was, I believe it was the same year, too. <laughs> now we have to know, listeners out there. Now we have to know. Let's get our uh, anime expert, Nate, on there. All right, I'm looking this up now. Girls Bravo came out in... Oh, God, it came out in 2004! I was right! Oh, uh, <laughs> wow, the same year. <laughs> yeah, you if Maya was I... a boy, it really could have been another Girls Bravo. And you know what? I had a gut feeling about that because I think I saw Girls Bravo in 2009 for the first time. But uh, no, it just it, it kind of had that feels. I'm glad I went with my gut there because that was really funny. I was five years off, but they were still really doing the very fan service harem stuff. And that was honestly like in the DVD market. If you were ordering a lot of anime DVDs, they were really pushing harem stuff. Yeah, stuff like Deers and uh, Vandred, although Vandred's not bad. No, no, not at all. But to go back to the characters, though, I took a liking to Shizuka immediately. Shizuka is a lovable character just because she's nerdy and she thinks she knows everything. And she's she's our girl. She's our our girl trademark. She's, she's more girl. of a mother figure to Maya than Rena is. And honestly, having Shizuka be that character and having her being more of an extrovert really does help out Maya's character. Even when Shizuka got herself into a couple of situations where she was kidnapped or anything like that. Remember that one episode, episode 10, where Maya saved Shizuka's life from becoming a particular type of worker. I want to say my favorite little bit with Shizuka this is one of those, they didn't need to do it, but they did anyway. Episode 3, where Shizuka and Maya are chasing down a gang of criminals in one of the slums. Shizuka talks about how she knows the area, and we actively see her going up, talking to people about, you know, where, where certain things are located. And yep. during a chase scene, she passes through several businesses, and she says hello to the business owners. It's just a small thing... But it shows that in addition to being book smart, Shizuka is also street smart. 
Yeah, she's street smart, but uh, remember in episode 10 where they throw that all away where they're in Siberia and they have to get those translators because Ren is like, oh yeah, I have a very expensive translator. It's just a little pearl earring. And at the end of the day, Shizuka kind of doesn't play, you know, that she knows something to help out Maya, which ends up like their their bigger headsets, their translation headsets end up having GPS and things like that. So Shizuka kind of knows what she's doing, but she's also kind of like a big yellow lab, you know, she's a big golden retriever at the same time. And that leads us to the two best characters in the show. First up is you. And the character who steals the whole damn show, Gloria. Oh my god. I think that you and Gloria's dynamic really works together because it's such a 90s and 2000s anime thing. And I'm pretty sure anyone who is bringing, you know, licensing this show over saw that and went, okay, if the show completely sucks, you know, vetting all of these episodes, at least you have these two characters to give a chuckle and to, you know, if someone's bored with the show, even if they're the most staunch anime fan, you're going to get a chuckle from you and Gloria every time. Just their dynamic is so perfect. If I can describe both characters, Gloria is, as I did with the thumbnail, if the phrase, so anyway, I started blasting, was a character. Yeah, she's very headstrong, she's a gun nut, and she's just hot-headed. And any time that she can fight, because what she said in the show a couple of times is that I'm always ready for a fight. She's just a very hot-headed girl, and any way that she can find a weakness in someone, she can. And remember that moment where, even though she's like a wonderful marksman, where she was at the carnival and she missed every shot? Yes. Toy. <laughs> it was such a testament to her character where she's just so headstrong and so confident in herself that that toy gun, like, oh, I gotta shoot it like a real gun, and how she missed and how she was so embarrassed by that. That's just a testament to her character. Also, her favorite color is green. Because she loves money. That's right. That's why she's on the team in the first place. There's a great little running gag that talks about how broke these girls are. And, you know, we forgot to bring that up in the plot. And that's always the thing that they're always looking for the next job from the government or something like that. And then they're just like, oops, we're out of money again. And that's also a bad thing about the plot with this show is that there's always these storylines unlike how cowboy bebop would handle the oops we're broke again storyline this one kind of does it a little too much even though they're going on vacations and buying food and so on and so forth you really do get the sense that the crew of the bebop are in fact broke in this the girls are broke simply because they just don't know how to budget that when they see money they know how to spend money <laughs> Also shoot first and worry about collateral damage later. And that's why they're always broke. And I really feel like that's kind of one of those things that runs into all of these characters is that they have, even though that they are government contractors, they really do not give a darn about public property. <laughs> well, the thing is, is that they're not even government contractors. They're outside the central agency. The ocean agency is what, what it's right. called. Right. And I mean, you know, what I mean by government contractors is just basically they have their own agency and they're going and doing government work and things like that. There's kind of a clash between this private agency of five mercenary girls versus the main defense body, the Ocean Agency. Yep. Not as well done as it is in Die Guard, but it's there. It's yet another case of, and I'm going to play the MST3K clip here. I'm the government. I'm the government, I'm the reason nothing works. Yes, thank you. And that, like, that's why I put in one of my notes, is that they're always going after corrupt government folks, even though that they are, you know, these third parties that get hired by the government, and they're always trying to stop some stupid terrorism plot. And it's just like, what? Okay. How do they get roped into everything? <laughs> And that brings us also to the other character, the last of them, and that is you. If Gloria is the embodiment of chaos, I would call you more controlled chaos. The thing about you is I actually remember her being a big part of the advertisements in magazines with her thumbs down. And I was like, what is that character? I need to look up where she's from. <laughs> That's where I initially found 
Daphne in the Brilliant Blue. But one thing about you is that she is the straight shooter of everyone in this group. She's very serious, very straight-laced. And honestly, if Gloria wasn't there, I think that we wouldn't talk about you because you is always reacting to Gloria. You is always reacting to uh, Shizuka, Reyna, not so much Maya, but anytime that there is nonsense, you is always there to shut it down. And I think that's what I like about that character. And what I like about her is that she is the straight shooter of the bunch. She actually takes it serious. And even though Reyna's the leader, Reyna knows you know when to goof off and knows when to chill out you is definitely not that she is you know like you were saying a controlled chaos she is the person that she's under control and has to have everything under control but will create some problems to make sure everything's under control and the running gag of her beating the crap out of gloria never gets old i want a whole show about the adventures of you and gloria they make such a great team and I will have to say, you know, when we're talking about suggesting the show, these are the two characters that I would say carry it. If you are curious about this show, look out for Gloria and you. The first two episodes, they're going to be there a little bit, but you really got to let the show settle in to really get the best of Gloria and you. There's a really good episode involving the two as well that involves a baby. And I think that's when you told me this show has some heart. And I was like, well, what you think of the show? Ready for you to hate it. You told me about this episode. It could have easily just been another pointless fan service show, but I think the fact that we have so much to say about these characters, combined with some memorable moments, and the fact that it's more than just an excuse to show off the girls in skimpy outfits, really elevates it in my eyes. Not to the level of something like a Black Lagoon, but it's competent. It's oddly competent. I mean, it's just like us just kind of sitting here and laughing about our main characters. And of course, let's get into the side characters. And I think you have a lot to say about some of those side characters. The only one that I really have to say anything about that is Ben, the uh, temporary secretary, if you will. Yeah. When I say that things could have gone badly if Maya was a boy, they do have a man in their group, and he is this middle-aged, dullard bureaucrat who is constantly abused by these poor women. And anytime he tries to do something perverted, he is rightfully put in his place. Which is a great thing, and, and definitely Ben is someone to talk about with the show as well. But all, all of the male side characters are, gr are just great, oddly enough. When they try to do perverted crap, it never, you know, they, they are always put in their place. And oddly enough, yeah, this show could have gone a lot worse if, honestly, there was, you know, much more problems, I guess. Uh, much more problematic behavior out of some of the main characters, if you know what, I, if you know what I'm talking about. The fact that That's it has I mean. such a restraint to not put the girls in hentai-esque situations really needs to be commended. It does, but I mean, I think that modern audiences, if they if they watch it, if they are more on the sensitive side, uh, the human trafficking stories that this show brings up a lot is really a problem for some people. I would think that it would be an issue for some people, but they do overdo it. And I would say like that's one thing about this show is that I really feel like they overdo the human trafficking subplots a lot and it's it's really crazy that in this futuristic world despite this you know government agency and everything like that uh, and you know the separate agency and mercenaries all going after crime you would really think that they would have a couple of particular crimes like terrorism and human trafficking totally just squashed but they don't <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of stories that involve kidnapping or hostages or somebody taking a ransom, usually female. I think that's the only one that will really sit badly with some people, but eh, that's uh, the rest of the aspects aren't too bad in my humble opinion. Yeah, I, like I said, I just want to think about some of our viewers and on the more sensitive side. For some of the plots and the final I would say like the final episodes themselves really elevate Maya's character where it needed to be in the first place but then the whole resolution of the show 
is just it falls flat and that's just kind of how that show kind of is it's just everything that it tries it falls flat but at least it tried it you know I do say, though, I liked a lot of the recurring characters, especially the uh, antics of the three brothers. Oh, yeah. I, I just I just love that one time where Maya's trying to do some crowd control and they're on the hover bikes and they're like, oh, hey, it's Maya. And the and the cops are just like ready to kick these guys butts. And, <laughs> and it's just like, oh, yeah, we're not going to cause you any trouble anymore. We know Maya. It's funny how the one who's in charge of those three is a girl. She's yeah. the one who's the most competent. Uh, May, I believe, is who it is. But I just like the moments that they show up, and it's just like they they start off causing trouble, and then they're like, oh, wait, we know somebody here. (laughs) And they go from just loud, scary lions to little kittens and just kind of scamper off. It's really funny. Yeah, Wong, Long, and I believe Lee are the three uh, brothers, and their antics are hysterical. It does really help with the show, too. It's like when you know that they show up, you you can kind of pay attention and see what they're up to even if it's just a quick gag and if you don't get the gag then that's okay they're there long enough to have their gag play out but they don't overstay their welcome it's just enough as i like to say just enough yeah absolutely so what do you think of the ending of the show i think i've already shared a little bit of how i feel where it's just it ends off on a whimper and by the time that maya becomes interesting they just go okay we're done yeah it's kind of what i said earlier if maya was getting better at her job i would say that the whole subplot of learning about her past would be warranted but it's not like when she grows her memory grows with her it's just kind of an out of nowhere thing i'll say that it's handled better than it was in burst angel because burst angel is a mess of a show and i really hope to revisit it in the future Never seen Burst Angel, but I have heard things about it, so... Oh, you're trying to break me with Daphne and the Brilliant Blue, but I think I can break you with Burst Angel. (laughs) Ah, you know how to push my buttons. Seriously, though, it's not the worst thing I've ever seen, but it is incredibly mediocre. Monica Riel and Jamie Markey, if you are listening, I am very sorry about that. It's okay, I'm sure they'll forgive you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Regarding Maya, though... It's at least something, and I'll give it an A for effort. I'll I'll give it a I'll give it a B. I'll I'll give the ending a B. At least they cared to have a story in that regard, and I think the twist regarding Maya's grandfather is indeed a nice way to end the series. And I can say that I did get a little emotional there. I can see that. I can definitely see that. But I think that. Uh... I think that with the twist, I kind of, I definitely saw it coming. And the twist with Maya's grandpa, because in those first two episodes, you knew something was always up with Maya, but then you just felt like there was a ton of filler. And then by, you know, the last couple of episodes, you're just like, okay, there's a reason why in a way she's been protected. And there's a reason why she is not great at things, but she still survives. (laughs) Do we have anything else left to say about Daphne? Um, I would have to say not really. Not really. I think that uh, we've covered everything. And honestly, with a 26 episode, well, 24 episode show with two OAVs, this was the best that we could really say about it. And I wanted to show you this just as a curiosity. This was the anime that got me out of anime. (laughs) <laughs> I think the N- fact that I kind of do my own thing with it and I watch other stuff, I don't think I'll ever fall out of love with it. But if I watched this when I was still curious about it, I would have just looked at it and said, eh, that was all right. Yeah. But I mean, I think like I was going through a different time and I was a little, it, I was going through not a difficult time, but I think I was going through a time in my life where I was kind of like everything with anime, I kind of had to fall out of it for a while and watching this show and taking the time to watch the show in the early two thousands was kind of one of my things like, well, I can get out of caring 
about anime for a while and be absolutely okay because there was a lot of shows like that around uh the gundam shows at the time i felt like weren't really great and this was about the time that you know i was learning about some of the earlier gundam shows because that wasn't common knowledge like everybody has it better now but there it really wasn't common knowledge about a lot of the more obscure gundam shows or mecha shows or girls with gun shows about anything like that you know it was harder to get into because you didn't really have people like us nate you didn't have people championing the championing the older stuff excuse me but i just would have to say that yeah this was kind of the show that got me out of it and would i suggest it to anybody nate would you i would say if you like the dirty pair or want a at least passable girls with gun shows and you're willing to put up with a little bit of fan service and stories about girls being taken hostage, I'd say, yeah, give this one a passing glance. It's not awful. That's the best thing I can say about it. At, at the very least, like, if we're grading on a scale, this gets, like, a B-. minus. Yeah. This, this is a show that I would have to say, you know, if you can put up with fan service, if you can put up with lackluster care, some, a couple of, of a lackluster main character... And you were curious about what was anime like in the early 2000s. This would be a show that would be much more passable than uh, a lot of other shows that I would show someone. I would say like this show and Infinite Rivius would be two shows. And I think there's been a couple of episodes where I've talked about Infinite Rivius. <laughs> we'll have to get into that one someday. But it's two shows from the early 2000s that I'm just like, you know, they're not bad. They're not too good. But they're passable and it's like well this is what we were getting pushed by the anime magazines at the time this is a couple of the passable ones everything else was kind of trash unless it came from the 90s or something like that you know it's certainly a product of what i call the bubble period for anime and i'd have a whole podcast talking about that but the anime bubble or the american anime bubble in this case was basically when companies were spending a lot of money to license a whole bunch of shows that had no hope of gaining traction in the hopes that something anything would stick this and really does feel like a product of that time period from an American marketing standpoint. Absolutely. And I think that's that's why I kind of really liked showing you this, because I have a lot of things to say about the bubble, too, that uh, they were just throwing shit at a dartboard and seeing what sticks. And it's not like, you know, that VHS cottage industry era of the 80s and 90s that I love so much, where it's just basically like, OK, we're not going to risk a whole show we're going to risk having a couple of OAVs that we're going to release or buy every OAV we can. But hey, it's just an OAV that people can buy and rent and feel ripped off by instead of like really getting down to brass tacks and, you know, licensing a whole show and then having to have the balls to put that whole thing out as bad as it is. Yeah, I'm so glad those days are over, kind of. But that being said, if you want to watch this show, all I have to say is good luck. As I stated in the beginning, this show has gone out of print again. It was briefly licensed rescued by Sentai Filmworks, and they did put it out in two DVD box sets, but now those rights have expired and it is no longer streaming on High Dive. So again, you may have to watch this series by other means. <laughs> and any way you can, like SNES Drunk says. Just watch it by any means if you're interested. You can find some episodes online, but to get the real meat and potatoes, you do have to take some really deep diving. Yeah, I was lucky I got the DVDs for a decent price on eBay, and uh, considering that the show really isn't all that memorable and wound up not being one of my favorites, I'm probably gonna end up selling them. Probably get a pretty penny put towards a mister. Well, what's the funniest thing about that is my DVD sets that I had, I sold a while back. <laughs> so I really find that that's funny. It's one of those shows where, you know, it's just like you want to watch it. You want to put it all there. And then once you've seen it, you're just like, yep, one and done. See you later. Yeah. <laughs> and watch, we accidentally just create a whole Daphne DVD bubble. Daphne and the Brilliant Blue, these two knuckleheads talked about it on a podcast and said it was okay. Now it's infamous. <laughs>
So I think that'll do it for this episode. If you enjoyed what you hear, please give us a like, subscribe, and follow us on places like SoundCloud, Spotify, Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts, any place where you get your podcasts from. Race, plug your stuff. All right. Well, if you guys have already known me from other Otaku Nate Show podcasts, you guys know that I'm a Twitch streamer. I do a little bit of YouTube work. I'm a writer, and I'm a musician as well. And uh, you guys can get a hold of me on my Linktree. You know it, Linktree slash RacerX. Find me there on my Twitter making hot takes. And you can also find me on my Twitch channel, where I make even spicier hot takes about video games, anime, wrestling, and anything else. You can catch me on Sunday to Wednesday from at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And you can find me on Twitter at Otaku Nate Show and Otaku Nate Show on Facebook. You can also find me posting stuff for my travels on Instagram at Instagram.com slash NateTendoWee. Next time on the Otaku Nate Show, we got a big one. We're not just looking at a classic. We are looking at one of the most important and most influential anime titles of the 1970s. A show that would further the careers of many creative staff. A show that would lay the foundations for one of anime's most famous studios, and would be the big debut of one Hayao Miyazaki. We are going to look at Future Boy Conan, and uh, I might have booked one, maybe even two special guest stars to help review this thing because we're gonna have a lot to talk about there and i'll know i'll be listening in so until then this is otaku nate and this is racer x and we're signing off and saying beautiful dangerous and desperate for work